I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Replay, powered by digital media. Now here's an interview from the stage of Code Media. Let's get this part out of the way. You got hacked a while ago. Probably yesterday. Yesterday, it feels like. It feels also like a lifetime ago. Um, how, is, how is your company different today than it was pre-hack? Um, I, well, first of all, I think it's well in the rearview mirror at this point. You know, I, I think uh, it's very much of an afterthought to everybody. I do think people are a lot more cautious with their email. I do think uh, people are cognizant of uh, what sort of information should and shouldn't be shared, regardless of whether we've got somebody out there hacking us. But the, but, but the, but the point now is when you walk around the studio, you absolutely get the sense that this is in, in, in our past and not... It not, doesn't come up in discussions. No, no, thank you. Presumably you've got a different IT team and a different IT structure. And then, not a different IT team. Uh, there is some difference to the IT structure, but not, you know, I mean, we, as the U.S. government has told us, we were supposedly um, cyber attacked by a sovereign. It's not clear that anybody could have withstood that. And then having the, the contents of your inbox dumped out in public view for a couple years. Sifted through. I published catalog. a couple pieces from it. Yes, um, you. You're not going to get me to swear, other, like other people have been sitting in this chair. <laughs> swear all you want or don't swear, it's fine. My kids are no longer here in the room, it's fine. Um, do, you, do you communicate differently now? Are there things that you will only say on the phone? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I have my fax machine is in great use at this point. You're actually using faxes. Fax, and I write it out by hand, and then I put it in the fax at yeah, least so, once a day. So it does, I mean, if, it's, if, that's, if you're not being facetious. No, 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 I'm not being facetious. So it actually slows your business then, because you've got to... Uh, you know, it's surprisingly how quickly you can write something down on a piece of paper and shove it in the facts. Yeah. It, 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 no, and by the way, sometimes slowing things down for a minute, that's not the worst thing in the world either. What you say in haste at 3 o'clock yeah. in the morning, which was often the case of what showed up in some of those emails, is not necessarily the best way to, to uh, say what you, you want to say. use any alternate methods of communication? It's, you're on the Snapchat board? Smoke signals, you smoke mean? Smoke signals? No, smoke signals. There's WeChat, Snapchat... Uh, I do. You, I, I Snapchat with folks. Yeah, uh, not for work. Not for work. No, no. And uh, mostly with my nieces and nephews and kids. Um, and I uh, instant message a lot, as you would imagine. So we'll go back to Snapchat in a bit. So let's talk about your actual businesses. Um, start with TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Mike Hopkins here from Hulu. Um, one of the reasons he's interesting to talk to is, is there's this reshuffling of, of priorities with the TV guys and the SVOD guys, the Netflixes and the Amazons, and there's this move from the big TV networks who are also in TV production to say, we're going to hold back more shows, we're going to stop arming Netflix so Netflix can compete with us. You guys have a big production arm right? TV, but it seems to me like you're kind of neutralized to sort of networks versus Amazon. Do you have a... Do you have a side? We're fairly agnostic. I mean, the risk profile is different and the upside is different. So you, if you do go off and make a series with Netflix, which we're doing right now, two very good series, I should which ones? add. Um, one of them is called The Crown and um, the other one is a Baz Luhrmann series. Um, in that instance, 
you're guaranteed to make money pretty much right out of the gate because it's a cost plus business. Right, and there's no syndication. There's no syndication, so you deliver your series, you get your money, and you go home. And they buy out all rights. So there's nothing ancillary, there's nothing international, nothing. That sounds pretty good. It is good. Um, with the other, uh, obviously, whether you're selling to a cable network or a broadcast network, and if you do get a hit, if you do get a Breaking Bad, the potential upside is multiples of what you would get with a Netflix. That being said, you can also lose a lot of money on a broken series. So it's right now, I think, the way that we're managing the portfolio of our own production companies is, is, is pretty good. I mean, on the one hand, you have uh, a source of income that is fairly riskless, and the other one is riskier but has more upside to it. You brought up Breaking Bad. Um, because of, I think, the success of Breaking Bad, it's one of the reasons AMC, your, your client there that was, was uh, buying Breaking Bad from you, has moved towards creating and owning more of its own shows. It wants to have those rights as well. Do you see right. more of the network saying, we're really going to try to bring this in-house and maybe cut you guys out of that, that deal? Um, I think they're being the, the economics of their businesses is, are requiring them to try and do that. So as their affiliate fees come down and the advertising market gets more challenged, they say to themselves, rightly, we have a platform here that's launching content, and the way to make up for those shortfalls is by owning more of the content. Um, but the truth of the matter is that they need to have the best content. You've heard this a hundred times. They need to have the best content they can at, on the networks. And if you show up with the next Breaking Bad, or in this case, right. Better Call Saul, they want to get ratings. So they're going to likelihood take that show. They want to get ratings, but they are trying to own more of the stuff. So Because one, there's are. a version of the future where I, I don't go to AMC. I go to Apple TV and say, show me something, and up comes Breaking Bad. I don't know where it comes from. Right. That's not bad for you because you're, you're either going to have been paid for it or you will get paid for it. Right. It's maybe not good for AMC because they don't know that, I don't know that it's coming from AMC. They get sort of cut out of the equation. Right. So it's pushing them to own their own stuff. Yes, but it's also pushing them to own their own stuff by virtue of the fact that the advertising revenues are challenged and the right. ability fees are challenged. So if you want to make more money, you've got to find the source of it somewhere else. Reed Hastings has something effective. We, we, we saw this coming, and we knew that sort of the distributors were going to become the owners. In that scenario, if Netflix owns its shows and AMC owns its shows, does your role as a TV producer eventually diminish? Mm, not necessarily. I think as long as we maintain the creative relationships that we have with showrunners and um, the folks in our television division, I think, do a spectacular job. That we will continue to be able to develop shows that networks want to have. So you know. So and and what Reed has been saying, by the way, is that he's been forced to create his own content by virtue of the fact that other people are saying to him, "We won't sell you your content." Right. And there's a little bit of an irony to that because if you really look at the success of Breaking Bad, Netflix is as much responsible for that success as. AMC. That's what Netflix says. AMC gets bristly about it. Uh, they don't get that bristly. They, I mean, if you look at the figures, it sort of took off once it appeared on Netflix, which is, what was it, a year and a half, two years into the show. Right. Then all of a sudden people started binge viewing on Netflix. And yeah, no, they, they get all uppity and they say, no, 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 it was because we were doing it on SVOD. And, and I, think it was a, I think it's a pretty symbiotic yeah. relationship, actually. And, and everybody gets overly competitive in it. So you are a seller of TV, so I'm not going to ask you if you think there are too much TV, right? Because that's, that's the definition of a softball question. All right. Well, I've uh, heard the question before, right. yeah. So, um, so instead of asking you that question, how long do you think we're going to have this boomlet of 
people making lots of television shows. There are also many buyers right now. Do you think this right. is a permanent state, or do you think it sort of retracts at some point? Very tough to answer. I mean, I know John Landgraf sort of came out with a comment, and I've had lunch with John since, and he sort of pointed out the nuances of the remark. As usual, John is very smart about this stuff. Um, I think there's a couple of factors at work. It, 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 the, the whole concept of peak oil, as it were, in television is, as, as they always did with peak oil, they got it wrong. Perpetually, they kept saying, oh, we're going to run out of oil, and then inevitably yep. they discovered more of it, um, uh, even before fracking. In this instance, I think it's, there's a couple of things at play. One is, how much can the audience actually watch? That, act, from my vantage point, and much to my surprise, seems to be an appetite that can't be filled. It should be finite, right? Because you can only be awake for 24 hours. It should, but now you can watch it on the bus. You can watch it. You know, I mean, there are many right. more ways to watch it. There are many more rooms to watch it in. Um, I don't know where that place is, but it doesn't appear at this point in time that we've come anywhere near it. The second piece to the puzzle is, uh, which is a little more complicated, is how much creative talent is actually capable of making quality television. And there I do think we start getting, we start straining the boundaries at a point because it is a craft. It does require enormous skill to be a really good showrunner. There are a limited number of good shows. We've all watched bad shows and we don't, we, don't, we don't like to watch them. So I do think it's somewhat defined by that, at least here in the United States, keeping in mind you're, you know, people are making shows all over the world to this point. Um, so in that regard, I do think there's gonna, but, 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 and I know I'm giving you the either or here, I think more people are coming into television than ever was the case in the past who wouldn't have considered making television. So that seems to fill it up as well. The last piece I do think will diminish, which is the number of buyers. I do think everybody and their brother has jumped in and said, we're making originals. And it doesn't matter whether they're you know, a cable series, which in a million years you wouldn't have thought was going to make an original, to a new SVOD service, a platform you've never heard of before. This Fox matter. Media would like to be in the TV business. Well, there you go. So I think some of those, if not many of those, eventually will find this isn't... The, 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 it's not easy to be in TV? It's not easy to be in TV. The, the business is expensive if it doesn't work. And Chad hears this. He's and eventually, here. you know, they'll say, not for us. We've got to find something else to do. So eventually sort of that, that boomlet dies down when you retract. It quiets it. down, let's say. Good. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it would be my expectation. So, and you but it's a factor of the, all those. It's, you know, it's a function of all those three factors. If I asked you three years ago, are we going to see this boom in TV? Could you have predicted it then? Or is this really relatively recent? No, I never would have predicted this in a million years. Not, not at all. It's a happy accident for you. Very happy accident, yeah. Let's move to movies. Mm. Um, it seems like that is a business that is not changing at a very rapid clip. There's a move to China. There's China's role as a consumer mm -hmm. and financer, mm -hmm. financier. Financier, whatever. Um, I write. French. I, don't, yeah. I don't talk. Um, that's increased. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the, the, the fundamentals of movie making and movie distribution have changed much over the past few years. Am I missing something from the outside? No, I think that's right. I think there's been, you know, coming back to television for a moment, 
technology for the first time has fundamentally changed the creative product in television because you now have these open-ended episodes, which you could never have in the past because there was no catch-up, there was no binge viewing. So. Right, you can make 10-part series, you can do five years of 10-part right. series. Right, so actually you're getting writers cr creating these very long narratives now that go on for 10, 13 hours. So there you have a completely different product. I think the, the fundamentals of movie making, leaving aside for a moment 3D or um, special effects, has not changed, no. But other things have changed about it. For instance? So, for example, you have... Uh, for the first time in the last four or five years, you have multiple billion-dollar worldwide franchises. That just never existed in the past. It was, un it was inconceivable. Uh, part of that is the expansion of markets like China. Um, part of it is just the fact that you have multiplexes all over the place. Um, I think the haves and have-nots have increased. So in the past... Um, if you were to take a certain sized movie that was a family picture that you put enough money behind and you put it on a holiday weekend, you could be guaranteed a certain gross. Um, right now, and it's not related to the billion number, I'm not even talking about those kind of pictures, the audience either embraces something or just rejects it. Um, and that makes it a scarier business to be in in some respects. Uh, it, you can't... Uh, you can't market your way through something necessarily. Right. And it isn't just a function of the movie being good or bad, although obviously bad movies have a worse chance. Mm -hmm. But it's also just a function of the fact the audience doesn't want to see it. And, and you think social is a part of that, right? People tell them, tell each other on Facebook or Twitter this, this thing sucked. Yeah, I think social, I suspect, is a part of it. I think competition is a part of it because there's more to do. I, but, it's, but leaving aside why it's happening, the fact that it's happening is something that we're all paying attention to. And then the third element to it also is the, the specialty business the, is, is changing as, as, as we see it uh, in the near term. How you know, so? Well, you see Netflix and Amazon coming into the marketplace. Yep. We saw it in Sundance this year, and they're paying um, very considerable prices for pictures that otherwise would have been purchased by you know, many, many different uh, theatrical distributors. And that's not, you know, for the, I don't know how long it lasts, but for the moment, that's going to change things. So the, the hot Sundance film uh, of, of, of the last Sundance, I'm going to forget the name as I'm on stage thinking about it. But what I do remember was that uh, Netflix reportedly bid $20 million for this. Right. Fox got it for $17 million. What does that, what does that say to you? Is that particular to that film and that filmmaker? You mean that Fox got it for 17? Yeah. Pay, what I'll, it says to me is that in a previous year, it would have gone for 10. And that, because that business never saw those kinds of numbers before. Right. But Are what you about, asking why it went to... Why, why it went to... It, why it, went, it went for less money than Netflix was offering, right? Right. But presumably because the filmmaker saw value in theatrical distribution. Uh, they saw... I don't know why they did it, but maybe they saw value in it. Maybe they thought that the picture would be marketed differently or marketed in a way that they thought was more appropriate to the movie. I wasn't part of it, but yep. I, I suspect that was a piece of it. But, um, no, but the number, the, the, the headline for me was the number that it sold for was almost twice what it would have sold for in any other, right. in any other year. And again, you think we're in that same sort of bubble that we're in for TV where this is temporary and then goes back down? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So on my flight back, I'm going to rent your, your last James Bond movie. I don't know what it's called. I know it's a James Bond movie. Right, Spectre. Spectre, thank you. Um, so you'll get some of that money. I would have paid a lot more to have seen it at home many months ago, but 
the windowing structure for, for movies hasn't changed. Right. Um, again, it seems one of those things that, that has not moved at all, even though the audience at least tells you out loud, we'd, we'd like to change. Right. I think you've got some sympathy for that move, right? It's just, but it seems like your distributors, your theatrical distributors have no interest in it, and so we're going to stay stuck there. It, for the time being, for the time being. I think you have an audience uh, right now who... You know, when I was growing up, which wasn't so long ago, stores were closed on Sundays. And in fact, where I grew up, they were closed, believe it or not, on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons. And you just couldn't get something then. And now everybody's used to... Every- you grew up in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. yeah. So, every, so now everybody thinks, rightly, that they can buy things 24-7, either on the internet or in a store. The notion that a movie for a period of as much as three months is completely unavailable between theatrical and home entertainment is, I think, confusing to the audience. And um, they themselves, I don't think if you stopped a person in the street and asked them the full windowing strategy and when the James Bond movie was available and why it's available in this order between the pay channel and the broadcast and the cable, and the, they wouldn't understand it. It is, it is something that's been built up because we have, by the way, the plus side to the windowing strategy, and interestingly, I think, because I know you want to talk about music, they're going to go to a windowing strategy in the music industry, is it has borne enormous fruit for the movie studios. It's been very, very profitable for the movie studios. Because they've been able to sell at different price points over time. Over time. I think it's been very profitable for the people participating in those movies, and I think we should act with extreme caution, despite you know the audience not understanding exactly how that windowing strategy works I'll save someone we the break o- a model that's, that's working. I'll save someone in the audience the time of asking this and say, aren't you encouraging piracy by having this windowing strategy, not delivering it to me when I want it at a time when I'll pay you for it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The data doesn't really entirely prove out on that. I'm not sure about that. So it's, you, you can see changing the system, but you're not in a hurry to do it. You're fine with the way it is now. We should be used to it. I think it'll evolve. Years. I think it'll evolve. I just don't think it's one of those things, given the fact that it has been so profitable and still continues to be very profitable, that you want to do it all at once. So let's talk about music. You control right. one of the three major labels. Mm-hmm. Consolidating, I guess we're done consolidating for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a discussion about whether there's going to be windowing or not, whether stuff will be available freely via Spotify's free tier, YouTube's free tier. Right. Um, where, are, where are things going to move if you have your druthers? I think, well, I mean, in the case of Adele, actually it was, it, and maybe that will be the last of its kind, where you actually you know, had the physical album out there on its own for a period, or, or rather the album out on its own before it went on a on She's a, a Sony service. artist? She's a Sony artist, yeah. Whose decision was that to, to keep it off Spotify? Uh, that was everybody's decision, and, and it was the right thing, and I don't think the Spotify um, audience was was hurt by it ultimately. I mean, is that something she and her management brought to you? Did you guys suggest it to her? That was discussed between the label and Adele. Um, But um, I think what you will see going forward, ultimately, is that you will see some version of windowing in the music industry. I do think, as we all know, the physical business is is headed downhill. We all see the, the, uh, the, the, the download business is declining every quarter. 
Um, and that's because people are now accessing their movies, uh, excuse me, their music either on subscription services or ad-supported services. And the, the, the kind of a service that we would like to see going forward is a subscription service. A subscription service where I'm paying to hear this music. Yeah. And if I'm getting it for free, then I've got to wait to hear the new Adele song, or I've, I'll be restricted from all the music I right. want. Right. And the argument from Spotify, which has a free subscription service, is two things. One, we need this free subscription service to, we need the free service to, to get a funnel going so we can get people they, to We pay. don't have adequate marketing dollars the way that Netflix does to generate leads. Right. So we need this. Leads. And, by the way, if we're not if we're not supplying this music for free versus this from this ad supported service, people are going to go get it from YouTube for free, or they're going to go back to stealing it. So it's, it's, we're we're not what you want, but we're better than the other alternative. Yeah, and it's really more the former. It's really the fact that the economics of their business at the moment say that we don't have enough money, um, given the way that the dollars get carved up between the the recorded side, the publishing side, and and the service itself to go out there and market the service. And the only way then we can get free or leads is by coming in through uh, free, free music. So right now I can get free on-demand music, just about anything I want on YouTube and Spotify. I'll have to watch an ad or two periodically or hear an ad or two periodically. Yes, yes. So when does that stop? It's a good question. I think it stops probably when you get over a... I don't even want to say the number, but as many, many fold bigger than what we have in the current paying subscription world. So you have 20, what is it, 7 million subscribers who are paying in Spotify right now. I think they've announced 25, but yes. Yeah, 25, like thereabouts. Um, and you've got, I can't remember exactly the number that Apple has, but it's 10 million there. 10 million. You're going to need multiples of that before you are going to turn off in my Oh, opinion. so you're going to, so your idea is let's keep selling, let's keep free going until we raise the number of subscribers and you then might turn see, it off. I, you might see it come sooner, but my suspicion is you won't until you so get I think the sooner. perception was you guys are saying, well, let's turn off free so people will have to go buy the stuff. You're saying, well, well I think what they're going to wind up doing is ultimately what I was, what we started the conversation with is they're going to window. So you're going to be able to hear the music when first in a subscription service and then later in a, in a free service rather than the other way around. But that requires a lot of education. You're a part owner in Vivo. We, yep. we Eric Huggers up here yesterday. He said they're going to have a subscription service. I asked, how is that different than the YouTube subscription service? Right. Didn't get an answer. Do you know what he's thinking about? Uh, I've seen some of the thought behind it, yeah. Yeah. Spell it so out a lot of it has to do also with the windowing strategy. Part of it has to do with some original content, things you would imagine that would come along. So you'll pull, some, you'll pull some things and put them behind the, the paywall. Correct. Add some new stuff. Correct. And find out some mix that will make it worth me paying exactly. X number of dollars a month. Exactly. Uh, the music industry has settled at a price of about $10 a month yep. for all you can consume music. It's roughly the same as Netflix. Do you think that's too expensive? No. Not at all. You think it's a fair deal? I do. To get access to that many millions of songs for, for 10 bucks a month, I think it's a, more than a fair deal. Apple, for a while, before they launched their services, trying to get the labels down to five or eight or some number yeah. below that. Yeah, It seemed like it makes sense, right? If, 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 if I can, it seems like movies are more expensive. They, I pay more money to consume movies. Um, they should yeah, price above By music. contrast, you listen to a song multiple times. Uh, you watch a movie once. So, you know, how that sort of plays out in terms of what, how, what the audience considers to be a fair price, that's, there is the mix. I mean, you listen to a song 
you run the sprockets off it. You, you know, somebody will listen to it 50 times, 80 times in a month. You watch a movie once and that's the end of it. So if you compare the $10 that you're paying to Netflix to the $10 you're paying to Spotify, it seems fair to me. What do you tell the artists? And by the way, the, 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 the surveys that are done suggest that the audience feels that way as well. The consumers do. And what are you telling Sony recorded music artists, Sony publishing artists who've been complaining for a long time that this move to streaming is not working out well for them? They're seeing much less. Their song gets played X number of millions of times. They receive pennies for that play. Well, as I say, it's an education process because what we try and demonstrate to them is that, is that actually they will see real money coming out of this. And obviously, it's going in that direction. So what we have to encourage is a subscription model, which is where they're going to get paid the most. Uh, you guys are, are an owner in Spotify. There's a lawsuit um, saying essentially you're double dipping because you, you both own, you're an owner in Spotify and you're, you're sharing revenues with Spotify and some of this money, the implication is, should be going to the but artists. we've already come out and said that we will deal fairly with the artists on this if this company ever decides to go public. So, so okay, so you're, you're in the same camp as Warner, so if there's yeah. a sale, we've you're going to redistribute it. We'll deal it. fairly with the artists, yeah. Um, do you ever think they're going to get to a point where they think, all right, this does make sense, the pie has grown bigger, I, I'm, I am getting a fair shake, or do you think there's, I mean, they would be permanently dissatisfied with the state of music um, because we're not in the CD era anymore? That's an interesting question. I think for those who lived in a world, which is, by the way, the same as the case for the movie business uh, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, who saw the economics that um, were so much better, both for the studios and the record companies and the artists and the actors, um, they will look out into this new world and say, wow, I'm getting less than I would have done before, and I have to do something to make up for the difference, whether that's touring or other things. I don't think they should view it as unfair, because that's, that is the way that the, that the world has gone in terms of the consumption of music and the consumption of movies and the consumption of television. So I, I feel your pain. There's not a lot I can do. Some, some version of that? There's only so much money to go around, absolutely. You know, and the, and the music companies have downsized. The, the studios have all downsized. It's not like there hasn't been significant reduction on both sides. Um, let's talk about Snapchat. You're the second Snapchat board member we've had on the stage in the last I day. gather. I gather. Uh, no potty mouth on you? What do you mean? No, yeah. That's not my... I'm going that's to not what I'm known that conversation. for. With or um, without your kids in the audience. So you've been, you've been, you've been on the board for a while. Um, mm -hmm. You've watched the company mature. You've watched Evan Spiegel mature. What kind of, first of all, what, what change have you seen in him over the last, what, couple years you've been on the board? Um, I think he's become what you would imagine him to become, a much more mature executive. He really has studied it hard, um, running a company, and I think he's gotten better and better at it. The one thing that's remained a constant, which I think is reflected in the product, is he um, is a terrific uh, product designer and innovator. And the company has continued, um, in my opinion, to uh, deliver great new uh, applications of, of, of Snapchat when, when he on had a the, very, very regular basis. When he had that $3 billion offer, mm -hmm. were you counseling him to take it? Because it was a lot of money for someone who was 24 or 25 at the time? It was really his decision. 
it was really his and Bobby Murphy's decision. What kind of what kind of counsel do you offer? What kind of counsel do they want from you? What are, what are the, they really the want to talk? they part of it is as they look out at the media landscape. Where should they fit in the music business, the movie business, the television business, both in terms of a, a platform to promote, but as well as um, how they themselves should be delivering content. A lot of it, though, is around management. A lot of it is, is you know, the organization has grown really quickly. They need to try and understand how to organize all the conventional departments you have within a company, and that, that's one of the areas where I can be helpful. And, and back to the, the media part of it. Yep. Right now, uh, Spotify, Spotify, Snapchat's a place where I go to create my own content, or my kids would go to create yep. their own content, and then you've got a bunch of publishers who are interested in Discover. Uh, it's free content. Do you imagine there's a place for paid content? Am I going to pay Snapchat to consume content at some point? I've not seen that yet, so I wouldn't know. But uh, I haven't seen plans of that. And, and again, we're just talking about Snapchat a lot at this conference. But what is the I thing? Gather, yeah. What is the thing internally that you're seeing at Snapchat that people out in this audience or the wider world don't get about that company? It remains a confounding company. A lot of people. Evan is a difficult person for people to understand. You know, I heard Evan say at one. I, th- I, th- I think I, first of all, I, one of the things that confounds people is, or they sometimes they don't fully recognize how often that company innovates on product. I mean, it's, it's, it's available if you use the service. I just don't think people recognize how, how difficult it is to pull off what they've pulled off. The other thing I think they don't understand all the time is, um, I heard Evan on a, on a, uh, on in, in a conference like this once um, to talk about the fact that for 150 years, the camera was used to document and that for the first time with Snapchat, not for the first time, but for one of the first times, Snapchat uses the camera to communicate. And I think the whole relationship between Snapchat users of the mobile phone and that camera and how they interact is, is, the, is the aspect of the service that I think people don't And that's why it's that first thing you see when you turn it on. You don't go to the content page. You go to the camera. Correct. And you're, you know, and you're using your camera as the lens through which, or rather you're using your phone as the lens through which you communicate with the world. And that is something I think doesn't, the penny doesn't always drop for people. It didn't even drop for me, quite honestly, until I heard Evan communicate it that way. So even though you'd been on the board and been and Even though I've been on the board and, and I've used the service since there were like 25,000 people on it, I, I, to, to really hear it articulated in that way, that allowed me to better understand. That's good. I feel not so bad about not always understanding how Snapchat works. This is my interpretation of it. And I'm sure if, if and when you get Evan up here, he might tell you something differently. But We'll ask him again. Yeah, okay. Good. Um, questions from the audience about Snapchat, movies, music, television, anything for Michael? It lights up a little bit. Thanks. Hi, Richard Cooperstein, Media Investment Group. Um, in your role, Michael, uh, what, what's the most uh, disruptive media and technology innovation of the last few years um, that Sony Entertainment anticipated and benefited from, and which is the one that you didn't actually foresee but that has been most um, important in your business, either by way of needing to catch up on it or that you've been benefiting from nonetheless? Wow. Um, That's a really good question. I suspect on both sides of the ledger would be the SVOD services. So I still remember when Reed Hastings split that company in two and then that didn't work out so well and they decided not to do it that way, but when they first launched. And um, I think... 
it sort of caught us a little bit flat-footed. And if you remember, what really launched the service um, was the fact that they had stars on that allowed them to sh show our movies and Disney movies. And um, that sort of caught us unawares. I think we responded to it pretty well by becoming an, uh, a very quick supplier to Netflix. Um, and also, it, we saw enormous benefit because it made certain markets like the UK, for example, where there was only one pay operator, suddenly a competitive market for our, for our television and movie product. And that, and that we've taken advantage of immediately. But that, I, I got to say, the, the way it ramped and the fact that they cracked the 25 million subscriber number here in the United States, I never would have guessed it. Anything you see, anything you see, if you look up five years hence now, given your roles, obviously across all the lines of business inside Sony Entertainment, but also now with Snapchat and all these other disruptive technologies, there's something you foresee that in five years you need to be a part of to anticipate kind of where new monetization and new uh, virality I, engagement potential is? You know, it, it, how technology and, um, and consumers and, and creators interact continues to confound and surprise me. There was, I'll tell you a quick story, which other people may in this room may have heard. I remember I was sitting with Milton Glaser, who was a great graphic designer, and it was back in the uh, 90s, and late, ni late 90s, it was just when the internet was coming off, and I said, this thing is gonna be great, and already this, that, and the other is gonna happen. And he told me the story of the Casio watch. He reminded me way back in, the, in, in 1980, the Casio watch came out and he said, everybody predicted we'd all be wearing di digital watches. And he made me look out in the, in, the, in the restaurant that we were in. He said, how many people do you see with a digital watch? And I said, nobody. And they all have analog watches on. He said, yes, but I guarantee you most of them have quartz inside of them, a quartz mechanism. And what people failed to understand was it was the quartz mechanism that was important and that people don't actually care what time it is. The way they read time is by trying to determine how much time they have left. So you look at at least people of my generation, because now kids with phones don't do it that way, they would look at the minute hand to determine how much left of the hour you have. So trying to, that was always, that was a lesson to me that sort of said, you don't, you cannot predict what is, accurately. What does the, 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 the watch parable tell you about VR? Do you think VR is, going to be a giant thing and is it going to radically change your business or do you think it is a thing that ends up becoming a, a Casio watch? I think it will entirely change the, that, that more than anything else will entirely change the vocabulary of film and television making. And so it, that one really is impossible to predict. But you think it's a thing? I do. I do. I absolutely do. Ryan? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Ryan, with the Associated Press. Um, now that we're, you know, just in front of the Oscars and, and given all the controversy uh, around diversity, I wanted to ask about, you know, does it does it matter uh, from a financial point of view, you know, how diverse a cast is in a movie, and and if it does, you know, have an impact, and if the audience is is you know getting more diverse, I mean, what do you make of of, of the situation that the Oscars finds themselves in right now? And, and well, I think they're 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 related, but they're not. I think. The diversity of cast is, is enormously important. You've only to look at a film franchise like uh, Fast and Furious to see what an enormous success that movie has been. And um, in large part, I would argue it's because of the diversity of the cast. I think the Academy has reacted very, very quickly um, and positively to, um, I think, what is a very extremely unfortunate situation this year and um, I, the hopes have been, you know, it's been said for a long time that the Academy 
um, needs to become more diverse, both in terms of um, uh, not just in terms of ethnicity, but but gender and age. And I think it, I think this was a really positive step forward that's been taken. Jason, quick question. Uh, Jason Rapp. One category we haven't really talked about throughout the conference is the multi-channel networks and YouTube's role and Disney and uh, DreamWorks and Warner and Churn and uh, AT&T have certainly placed their bets there. But uh, I'm wondering if you're bullish or bearish about that category of video content creation and how you view it uh, uh, from your perspective. I, I have a personal bias, and, but, that, but that's more born of the fact that I don't watch that much of it. I, it, it we have a service called Crackle, which has been very successful for us. It doesn't quite replicate what the other services that you've just described are, because it isn't short-form content. It's actually scripted, longer-form content. I think there's a market there for it. Clearly, there's a lot of people watching it. I have a hard time believing that it's going to become as large a business as uh, you know, conventional scripted content, whether it's delivered over an SVOD service or a conventional linear service. That's my personal view, but obviously others feel differently. There's some folks here in the audience that run those, so they can argue with you. They will, I'm sure. Stage. I'll let you go to it. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much, Thanks Peter. again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 